Miller's Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Miller's Natter, just talking to teachers. Okay, so hello, Guy, and welcome to Naylor's Natter. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Phil. Okay, so can I just start with a comment about how much I've enjoyed the book? And the book that we're talking about today is The Future of Teaching and the Myths That Hold It Back. Um, and I've been particularly enjoyable, as I've just said off air, that uh, for any new listeners, I've had the pleasure of speaking to a lot of the people that Guy refers to in the in the podcast previously. So I've had conversations with, amongst others, Daisy Christodoulou, Tom Bennett a couple of times, Tom Sherrington a couple of times. I've spoken with Michael Young, E.D. Hirsch, Paul Kirshner, and Carl Hendrick. So it was really good to kind of uh, look at that work from a different a different angle and i was really able to get really immersed into that content and i'm looking forward to, to talking to you about it now Excellent. so the first the first question is going to be can you start with a definition of the word for fulton and give the listeners a brief history of the ongoing battle between progs and trads yes i can't remember where i first came across the word i was it was pronounced to me as for fulton in a rather sort of scottish accent and it means worn out with fighting And one of the motivations for writing the book was feeling that there is this sort of phony war has been going on for quite a long time between two polarized images of approaches to education. Um, I think my, my strong suspicion is that there are very few people who actually inhabit the extreme poles of this distinction between traditional and progressive. But there are a lot of people who have images or stereotypes of what these extremes mean and have been spending quite a lot of time trying to persuade the vast body of teachers that the, the other extreme, the bogeyman for them, is something real and dangerous in some cases, um, and something that we ought to be really careful of. So in the in in the book, I try and be fair-minded um, and point to the fact that you you can do. I mean, even take these two extremes as if they were me, as if they were real. You know, you you can um, you can do either of them well or neither of them badly. Um, this isn't a book that's that's pursuing a progressive agenda against a traditional agenda. The purpose of the book for me is really to take a critical look at a particular particular kind of pedagogical extremism, as I see it, which says that there is only one effective and legitimate way of teaching, and that that is what I call direct instruction in a knowledge-rich curriculum, and that this is the only, the particular strong claim that is that this is the only form of teaching which is somehow or other legitimated or underpinned by cognitive science. And as a someone who spent a lot of time in the world of education, uh, but also my, my training, my background is as a cognitive scientist, the kinds of cognitive science which are being uh, adduced to support this position are, to be honest, the kinds of things that were familiar to me when I was doing my undergraduate 
training in psychology and my my postdoctoral um, research in psychology back in the late 1960s and early 1970s. So um, it just sort of dismayed me and surprised me that this was being presented as unquestionably the image of cognitive science, which was beyond question and which led to what, to my mind, were some rather questionable conclusions. Absolutely. So in terms of that um, direct instruction in a knowledge-rich curriculum, so the D-I-K-R, as you refer to it through the book, uh, Cabal, as you put it, could you talk about the mainstays of them? And could you give listeners, as you do in the book, some hits and some myths of the D-I-K-R assumptions? Yes. Um, uh, I mean, there were a lot of, as I dug into this, there seemed to be quite a lot of... Um, sometimes implicit, sometimes uh, very explicit assumptions or assertions. Um, let me just list a few of them. Uh, that dangerous forms of progressivism are rife in school and teacher training. Um, constructivism is a flawed ideology. Uh, that any form of progressivism prohibits teachers from telling students things. In other words, I mean, one of the ways I put this now is that if you're at all interested in, in learning as exploration by students, then some people assert that, that by the very nature of that, you must not be interested in explanation to students, that there is some kind of polarization or, or, or forbid, there's, there's no, I mean, my argument really is with the assertion that there's no middle ground. And I think the middle ground is where most, I don't know if you'd agree with me, Phil, is where most teachers live. We do a bit of explaining, we set up a bit of group work, we ask kids to engage with a with a problem, either on their own or in pairs or in small groups. Then we explain something to them, we, we scaffold the activity. The idea that of, the, of this sort of pure discovery learning, as if it were throwing kids into worlds about which they knew absolutely nothing, that they were complete novices, and just let them flounder miserably and unprofitably seems to me to be to be a real real bogeyman um there there are assertions about the nature of knowledge which perhaps we'll we'll, we'll get to um and sometimes knowledge is equated only with a kind of rather superficial factual retention of things that are supposed to be beyond question um some people argue that 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 the the knowing lots is all is all you need to have to make you clever um and of course knowledge is necessary but it just strikes me as blatantly weird to suppose that knowledge is that that knowledge is both necessary and sufficient there are other kinds of things that are required to be intelligent like the ability to think creatively and critically and so on um, the polarization of the idea that if you're interested in teaching skills, mental skills, thinking skills, and so on, that necessarily competes for time and attention with the transmission of knowledge, which is somehow or other the proper business um, of education. Um, there's a strong argument around, which I think stems from a really heartfelt moral position which is that progressivism especially disadvantages already disadvantaged children. Uh, 
because it dis- it distracts and therefore detracts from giving them the powerful knowledge which they will need um, in order to be socially mobile. Um, the assertion that you have to know lots before you can start thinking about them, that somehow or other you have to fill kids' minds up with rather unquestioned um, amounts of knowledge before they can begin to engage uh, in a thoughtful or critical way with that knowledge. Um, and I think for me, the linchpin is, the, is the, the idea that the fundamental architecture, this is a metaphor that gets used a lot, the fundamental architecture of the human mind um, is something that was discovered irrevocably, like you know, unearthing a, 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 an architectural ruin somewhere or other uh, 50 years ago, and that nothing of any profound or important significance has happened in psychology since then. So there there are quite a lot of these assertions which I take to task in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And I like the way that you've done that in the sense that a lot of the books that we're maybe going on to talk about, so, you know, Seven Myths and Daisy Christodoulou's work on and other works have kind of sought to dismantle some educational myths previously. And I like the way that you've kind of looked at these and gone, right, okay, let's deal with these, you know, one by one. And also you mentioned before, you know, do I agree in terms of a teacher? And this is one of the benefits of, of trying to keep this podcast up is that, you know, a listener say, hear me say this every single week, you know, I'm still a teacher in a classroom as well as being a deputy head of a school. So, you know, I can identify that living in the middle ground between mm. these, these competing ideologies is very much where you have to sit, especially, you know, depending on the context in which you're working as well. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's also that, that middle ground um, which we'll perhaps talk a little bit more about, both in terms of practice, but also in terms of the purpose of what we're doing, is really where the future of teaching lies. I think that's where the interesting things are going are going on. People are people are exploring pedagogies. I mean, there 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 is a genuinely interesting question about whether and how much you have to explain to students before you can have them exploring. Or whether there is whether it is useful to have them explore things that they don't yet fully understand before you introduce a full explanation in the classroom. And there, it seems to my reading of the research literature, there's lots of research which shows that it's extremely profitable to start a lesson with what some people refer to as a grapple problem, which is something that is beyond what students can comfortably do currently, but not so far beyond that they can't have some ideas about how to begin to engage with it. Um, and the research that I've been reading suggests that that's, that, as it were, very fruitfully tills the mental ground so that when you come on to a more explicit form of explanatory teaching, what you explain goes in more readily and more deeply because the children's minds have been prepared to receive it. They've grappled with the problem. They understand what some of the issues are with the problem. So the idea that, you know, there are only two kinds of teaching, the correct one, which is explicit instruction, you know, that always begins with instruction and that any kind of inquiry by students is, is, is unprofitable. Um, on the one hand, and this sort of bogey person of the, you know, the laissez-faire progressivism, progressivism on the other, the, this prohibition of the the new, the dynamic, flexible, nuanced 
moving around between different kinds of pedagogy, that this is somehow illegitimate, strikes me not only as kind of intellectually absurd, but also is holding back the kind of innovation in, in pedagogy, which, which I think, because I hold certain values about education, is really where our explorations ought to be. Definitely. And you mentioned values, and that's the next chapter that we get to. And in your chapter on values, you state that how you teach depends on what you're teaching for. So if certificates and qualifications are important but not sufficient, what are other outcomes that allow students who maybe do not do not succeed in exams can still be winners in education? Well, I think that's a really core question for me. And it's a core question which goes to the heart of this assertion of the the, the intellectual knowledge, the, the, the preoccupation with the transmission and the acquisition of intellectual forms of knowledge. Because, you know, that's a competitive game. And we know that because exams are designed in the way they are, that a certain proportion of children, many of whom are most of whom, if not all of them, are perfectly intelligent in a whole variety of different ways, are destined statistically required to be losers at the intellectual knowledge slash grades acquisition game. And, you know, we jolly well ought, as a, as a moral ought, to have a narrative about education which says what else is going on in schools that is of value to people who are only going to come out with two or three GCSEs, but nevertheless are going to lead rich and fulfilling fulfilling lives, doing things that they enjoy and that they are expert at, which are not, you know, being lawyers or professors or things that require um, high levels of, of explicit intellectual grasp. Um, so, uh, yes, I, I think that the for me, the values are to like, you know, with, what does it take to flourish? First of all, one of my fundamental beliefs is that we're preparing students for life, not just for access to the next stage of education. So to suppose that the purpose of education stops with the honours board of Oxbridge or or Russell Group University entrances is, again, for me, it's part of the game. But we lose a tremendous amount if we think that's the whole of the game, that there are other things. So there's knowledge transmission, skill development, but also and a lot of the research shows this, the development of deeper. And here we come into a, a very complicated vocabulary because people all over the world in different countries are grappling with how to articulate this character strengths, 21st century skills, habits of mind, learning dispositions. Key competencies, they call them in, in New Zealand. Um, all kinds of things that are, that are more fundamental attitudes towards learning, which are very important. Are you, as you spend time in a variety of different classrooms, developing a, a, a confidence and a competence to engage with things that are intellectually, mentally challenging when they crop up in your life? Or are you becoming more, uh, more docile, more anxious, more defensive, perhaps more dogmatic? That there's something going on down below 
the kind of a kind of implicit curriculum which we can't avoid in school and which we need to get right if we're going to prepare youngsters to flourish research by a nobel prize winning economist james heckman has shown that if you look at what i call the far horizon of education like how well are people doing in their lives when they're 40 or 50 years old it's not their a levels or their gcses or their ability to trot out some remembered aspects of the periodic table. It's personal characteristics like perseverance, like the ability to concentrate, like imagination, like collaboration and being a good team worker, like empathy and tolerance for diversity and so on. They count in the long run for more, actually, than the grades and the certificates which depend on the mastery of intellectual knowledge. So I think those desirable outcomes of education are absolutely fundamental to where we need to, where we need to be putting our attention and where our pedagogical innovation needs to be flourishing is how do we articulate what those desirable attitudes or aptitudes are and how do we design pedagogies that are effective at transmitting knowledge, at building literacies and expertise, and also at gradually cultivating these habits of mind? And I don't hear any, any interested engagement with that from many of the um, the direct instruction lobby. Somehow or other, there's an assumption. Daisy Christie's Krista Dulu says this explicitly in her book, that somehow once you've acquired enough conscious, articulate, declarative knowledge, somehow or other these dispositions will automatically appear and will look after themselves. And John Hattie says that's not true, and I don't think that's true. I think they need explicit attention. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Okay, okay, so bu building on that uh, talk about knowledge, and obviously um, I've spoken at length to both Michael Young and to E.D. Hirsch, you know, in the last year or so. So firstly, Guy, what, what reflections do you have maybe on, you know, the, the, I hesitate to say popularity, but certainly, you know, the, the kind of reference points of the work of Hirsch and, and Young at the moment within the profession? And then what kind of knowledge do young people need, do you think, to thrive in the, in the mid to late 21st century? Well, there's certain... It, it's interesting the vocabulary and the what what constitute the key call it the key concepts in different people's discourses about education and the word knowledge has become very iconic particularly in terms of the, the neo-traditionalists the people who are re, uh, reasserting the the, the centra, central importance of the knowledge rich curriculum knowledge is power say the kip schools and say michaela so there's there's the, the knowledge is a, is a, is a guiding concept but it's often i mean knowledge means a whole lot of different things dylan williams forward for my book points out very clearly that sometimes the word knowledge is used to refer only to factual and beyond dispute factual kinds of knowledge. You know, stereotypically the kings and queens and copper sulfate turns blue when you hydrate it and two twos are four and so on. But there's a whole range of different kinds of knowledges. There's practical knowledge, there's skillful knowledge, the procedural knowledge. Um, 
there are kinds of there are there are i mean what interests me as a cognitive scientist are kinds of non-intellectual or implicit or tacit kinds of knowledge the kind of knowledge that 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 underlies when we're reading a poem or listening to a song or or watching a film that we say we may not be able to articulate the effect that that had on us uh, and we reach for metaphors like we say it was very touching or i was moved by this um Whereas that's obviously resonating with a kind of knowledge when you read a poem that you can't articulate. Poets often say, if I could have said it clearly, I would have. But but poets reach for a kind of knowledge which resonates with people and with their experience, but may not be of the of the declarative and propositional kind. So I think some people use the word knowledge to shrink the zone of discourse, if you like, the things that are very explicit and very factual. The idea of powerful knowledge is a very powerful meme in education. Um, and I know and like and admire Michael Young, but he would agree with me that his conception of powerful knowledge has often been bowdlerized or simp- oversimplified um, perhaps in in the cause of defending this idea of powerful knowledge as being the knowledge of the school, the disciplinary knowledge of the school subjects. Um, and I wonder, my conversations, I mean, in preparation for the book, I had two delightful lunches with Michael Young, and we're planning, although we disagree about quite a lot, we're planning another lunch. Um, he thinks I've misrepresented him in the book, but I did my best, um, perhaps inadequate best, to represent his thinking. I like the idea of powerful knowledge, but I want to know powerful for whom, for what purpose, how does someone who is never going to engage with the world of science, I think it's great that they should be introduced to this fundamental, powerful model of, of the world that's summarized in the periodic table or in the solar system model of the atom or whatever it may be. I used to be a chemistry teacher way back. Um, but... Um, that's again, as I as, as I said, you know, that's not the be all. I want to know someone who is going to find fulfilment in their lives, being an upholsterer or a care worker, or a hairdresser, or an animator. I want to know how what they get from school is genuinely empowering for them in the lives lives that they lead. One of, the, one of the best books on this, a recent book by one of my gurus, if you like, in, the, in this area, David Perkins from Harvard, is a book called Future Wise, which is all about, it's a book-length discussion of what kind of knowledge, the way David phrases this is, what is it that most young people are likely to need to know in order to lead the lives that they're likely to lead? We can't say anything more than that. You know, it's it's a matter of balance and probabilities. And, you know, in, in his book, he comes up with a whole lot of things that, that, to my mind, from a very simple common sense point of view, have a strong claim on the curriculum. 
um, things like you know, the, obviously the theory of evolution, finance, human rights, the nature of democracy, justice, um, the mathematics of measurement, yes, uh, that should be in there, probability and statistics, the nature of censorship and taboos, um, the nature of embodied knowledge, neuroscience seems to me to be fundamentally important for young people to know, let alone more practical things like, you know, how to do a tax return or the fundamentals of good parenting or what have you. So I think if we go back to basics and, and ask the David Perkins question, you don't automatically, quickly and easily settle on the 10 or 12 traditional subjects of the school curriculum. There are a whole lot of other forms of knowledge, hybrid knowledge, practical knowledge, which stake a, a strong claim if we're looking at the far horizon of education and not just settling for A-level grades and university entrance. So it's a vexed and complex and urgent issue. What is it that we should, that we want young people to know? And I just don't understand people who say, you know, it's all cut and dried. You know, E.D. Hirsch tells us that he knows pretty clearly what it is that seven-year-olds need to know or 12-year-olds need to know. And I think there's a much deeper and very urgent form of public inquiry that mysteriously isn't happening about what should really should be the kind of knowledge which equip youngsters to lead rich, fulfilling, responsible lives. Absolutely. I think it's interesting as well how the kind of the work of Michael Young and Edie Hirsch has been claimed um, in the fact that it will serve disadvantaged students much better and they will improve their outcomes in, in later life. But actually, you know, as you said there, some of the skills that you're talking about perhaps, you know, will be equally well suited to some of those particular demographics of students that we're talking about. And actually, yes. I mean, you know, I like what you said about concluding somewhat reluctantly because I know one like Michael Young, that while his arguments on powerful knowledge may make interesting sociological reading and his desire to form an education that gives young people from disadvantaged backgrounds greater choice and control over shape of their lives is laudable. His proposals are too remote from the realities of those lives and too tethered to an outmoded curriculum to be of much practical help. I think that's really interesting. Yes, and I, you know, I, th I think the core of my dispute, and he, I mean, he, he would probably not agree with this, but I think Michael, like, like quite a lot of people, like myself in a way, came from relatively humble beginnings, found interest and liberation in the intellectual world of aspects of the school curriculum, and have built crudely. Uh, interesting, rich, middle-class lives around the, the, those forms of knowledge in school, and fine. I think it's great that we should lay out the smorgasbord of different ways of being interested and interesting as a human being. But then there seems to be an implicit le leap, I think, behind Michael's writing and some other people, that because that that worked well for him, it ought to work well for everybody. And I don't buy the idea that uh, allowing or encouraging people to become, you know, hairdressers, plumbers, care workers, whatever it might be, is somehow tantamount to keeping the working class in its place. I think that's a profoundly dubious 
argument. I think choice, Michael talks a lot about choice. Choice is critical, but I think the choice to be a skilled joiner or a guitarist or a cartoonist, these choices are fundamentally human and valid just as much as the choice to be a professor of philosophy or a or a neurosurgeon no definitely definitely and one of the themes coming through quite a lot and we've spoken about it uh, quite a few times already is about this nuanced um, view of, of the different arguments and in the next chapter we talk about how possibly we need a more nuanced and accurate model of the classroom to appreciate that thinking skills are dispositions that can maybe be cultivated over time with the right culture rather than skills uh, that can be learned quickly and easily by direct instruction so do we need that more nuanced and accurate model of the classroom uh, yes, I think we do. I mean, the the direct instruction people tend to set up the relationship between skills and attitudes on the one hand and knowledge on the other as if it were some kind of tug of war, as if there was some necessary competition uh, for time and attention and resource between these different things. And I have a, a different image which leads me in quite different directions. I talk about the, I, th I think there's three kinds of, of asset that, that we've already been talking about, knowledge, expertise, and habits of mind, for want of a better word. I think they're, they're always present in every classroom, that something's going on at, at, at all of those levels simultaneously. So I see them as like layers, and I have an image of the sort of the layers of the flow of water in a river. So knowledge is pretty visible. It's pretty articulate. It bobs along on the surface of the river, and we can, we're all very familiar with paying specific, uh, explicit attention to that. Skills and literacies also, a little bit further down in the river, a little bit harder to, to, to keep a grasp on. Literacy across the curriculum, what does that mean? Uh, going back to the 1970s. Um, slightly slower to form because we're talking about skills are not something that you can master just by being told. You have to take time to practice and embed them. But down at the bottom of the river, where I rather fancifully say the big fish are to be found, are these habits of mind like critical thinking, perseverance, collaboration, and so on. And I think the complete teacher of the 21st century needs three overlapping skill sets that match those, different th those three different valid objectives. So we're not throwing out the knowledge curriculum. Of course we're not. The argument is always about what's not what not arguing with what's necessary. It's arguing with what's sufficient to make help young people become fully educated. So at the level, I mean, very quickly at the at the level of knowledge transmission, knowing our stuff, you know, being a reliable source of knowledge, being able to explain it in a way that's clear and appropriate, asking good diagnostic questions and so on. Of course, we need those skills. At the cultivation of forms of expertise, we need to sit to create activities and give feedback which stretch and strengthen those forms of expertise. But down at the bottom of the river, for me, the, the question that's guided my research for the last 30 years is what do we do to 
create the classroom as a kind of incubator of these underlying habits of mind or attitudes, which are at least as important as the the expertise and the knowledge. Um, and a, a, a lot of my work, my positive work, rather than the critical work that I've been doing in, in the book, The Future of Teaching, has been drawing on a whole lot of initiatives around the world to articulate very clearly what kind of pedagogy helps young people become more independent, more um, able to think on their feet, more uh, intellectually humble, uh, more um, sceptical, appropriately sceptical of knowledge claims, more imaginative in their approach to thinking and, and problem solving, and so on. So uh, my image of the layers of the river is my attempt to offer teachers a kind of concrete metaphor for thinking about what's going on in the classroom, which gives all those three desirable outcomes a valid place. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Could you explain why the boxy model of the mind uh, on which Kirshner, Sweller, Willingham and others rely is a contested by the scientific community? It's definitely, it's definitely contested. Again, the language here is important. The word memory seems to have a very important resonance for the neo-traditionalists, if I can, if I can call them that. So it's like getting things into memory, long-term memory, working memory, seems to have a very powerful nuance for that, for that group. And I think part of part of it is just a, a linguistic confusion between the concept of memory and the notion of memorizing or what it is to ha to remember i mean this is i did my dphil at oxford on on the, the organization of semantic and episodic memory back in the early 1970s so i've been living and breathing in this world for 50 years or more um the the model the the i mean let's just let, I, there are metaphors models of memory are built on metaphors just as models of the atom are built on metaphors and the metaphor of these uh, uh, that 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 was rife when i was a, when i was a student and which underpinned the long term memory short term memory model was based on the then current fascination with the digital computer open up a computer and you find ram you find a central processing unit you find a, a hard drive and they're distinct from each other and physically and electronically things are shuttled backwards and forwards between these different stores store is also a metaphor um, you open up a human brain and you don't find anything at all like that you find one enormous, incredibly complicated neural network with different aspects and different inputs coming in and out of that neural network, which is spontaneously active and so on. So the thinking now about, you know, there's a very strong movement in cognitive science to reconceptualize working memory not as a kind of limited capacity vestibule that everything you learn has to somehow squeeze through in order to get into long-term memory, but is working memory 
uh, is what we call the way in which the, the enormous physiological network regulates its own activity in order to keep itself on track, in order to make decisions about what's relevant to this particular problem. And working memory phenomena often appear when we're engaged with problems of, of a particular kind, which involve us in trying to keep in mind several things that are currently not capable of being integrated whilst we solve the problem. And there are certain problems of that kind, and they particularly appear in maths and science. But they don't appear very much when you're discussing the subplots of Othello. They don't appear that much when you're learning a gymnastic movement. They don't appear that much when you're in a drama lesson. So again, you know, one of my beefs, if you like, with this approach takes science and maths as if they were somehow prototypical, scientific and mathematical problem solving, as if they were prototypical of the entire curriculum, and they're not. So I think this, fun, this, this model, which has had a long and honorable history, has reached its sell-by date. Even back in the, the early 1970s, the, the, the acknowledged father of cognitive psychology, a man called Ulrich Neisser, was, was poking fun at this, what he called boxology, of, of drawing neat little boxes with neat little arrows between them as a way of representing the important things that were going on in the mind. He said, all the important stuff is going on in the arrows. You know, you need to kind of unpack. You need to go to a finer grain of analysis. So I think the teaching profession are being sold a, a simplistic and antiquated model of the mind which uh, which doesn't serve them as well as a more up-to-date and nuanced biology-based model of memory. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just thinking back to some of the um, the courses that I was maybe leading when I was part of the research school networks. And this is not a criticism of that movement in any way, shape or form. But you mentioned and reference um, a blog that's talking about Ebbinghaus and the forgetting curve. And I think that's quite an interesting one. Do you mind sharing what you talk about with that? The, 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 the history of research on memory, I mean, way back when Ebbinghaus was doing his then groundbreaking experiments at the, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, he deliberately chose as the things to be remembered what he called nonsense syllables, which were things that were deliberately constructed to be devoid of meaning. And he built a psychology around that. The research on working memory has, was, be, was built around remembering strings of random digits. Now that seems, looking back, you know, and I was part and parcel of this world in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Looking back, that seems a very odd basis. That's not the way the human mind evolved. It evolved to do things that were meaningful. It evolved to get actions performed in the real world, in real complex situations. It, I, I now see the mind as having to contort itself, be a bit like a contortionist, uh, to do something rather unnatural to remember strings of digits or random strings of words. Um, and it seems odd 
to present as the you know the last word on cognition a model which is based on such curious such a very limited and curious kind of um, uh, empirical um, uh, a style of empirical work really yeah and if we can just continue down that theme um and i'm just rereading this this section here that i've highlighted numerous times and i've been <laughs> guilty of this guy i have absolutely been guilty of this so um i talked about the work that i've maybe done in terms of research schools and going out and delivering courses on things that we're talking about here and it's quite interesting about it you referenced some teachers rather cavalier attitudes towards research and i'm certainly going to include <laughs> myself in, in that and i'm <laughs> conscious that a lot of you know those teachers who are interested in that movement will absolutely be listening today so mm. the follow-up question is is can scientific research really tell teachers what to do? Uh, no, scientific scientific research. Um, I, I think the kind of research that I'm interested in, the sort of the fundamental research on the mind, the cognitive science, um, reveals possibilities. I think it it its most powerful effect on education is to give us new possibilities for thinking about children's minds and how they develop and what their limitations are and so on. Uh, so it opens up possibilities, but they're not, those possibilities are not moral imp imperatives. Education is a moral business. Every, every time we walk into a classroom, we're making what we do, what we say, what we notice, what we appreciate, what we, tr what we punish, what we treat as being relevant or irre irrelevant, are saturated with moral judgments. What's better or worse than something else? What's preferable or, or not preferable? So the idea that scientists can tell us how to teach just doesn't compute. Because it leaves out the or the, that that world of of moral choices. Now, if if you are you're only interested in the transmission of relatively superficial forms of knowledge and improving test scores in the short run, then direct instruction might be a suitable pedagogy. If, however, you're also interested in what's going on at the other layers of, of the river, the, the metaphor that I give you, then it is not at all obvious that direct instruction is the pedagogy of choice. There's a wonderful book that I, I drew on in my book by Yong Zhao called What Works May Hurt, Side Effects in Education. And he explores that in that book how a pedagogy that may be effective for one purpose, it, if we're not careful, may have unwanted or even toxic side effect on other things that we might also value in education. And there is a body of research which shows that direct instruction, which puts all the explanation up front and which removes the necessity or indeed the opportunity for youngsters to think, to grapple, to argue, to discuss uh, about what they're doing, that, that removes that possibility, that that form of pedagogy is detrimental to the development of critical thinking, creative thinking, and perseverance, which will be three of my core big fish, if you like, down the, down the, down the bottom of the river. So unless we're, 
we're clear about what the portfolio of desirable outcomes are and we're able to articulate those and keep them in mind, there is always the risk that we default back to exam results um, and test scores as the be-all and end-all of education. Um, and that's why, and, and there's a lot of research which shows that with certain groups of kids, with for certain kinds of material, for certain kinds of purposes, to, for direct instruction or forms of pedagogy that are nearer to the direct instruction end of the spectrum are effective. But that's not the whole of the story. And the rest of the story needs to be told if we're preparing kids for life, not just for university entrance. Yeah. Isn't it interesting, though, that a kind of a, a research and evidence-based movement that maybe sought to reduce the number of silver bullets being applied by school leaders to, to you know make quick change turnaround has almost now gone full circle in the sense that if you are res research and evidence informed, then you must uh, yes. in some way employ metacognition if anybody actually knows what that is um you know, i spoke to james and uh, kate quite recently regarding their book about a lot about metacognition. Yes, yes and then you must also of course you know use um you know cognitive load theory yes uh, you must also use you know um i'm trying to think of other examples of, of this kind of thing but you must also use some kind of retrieval practice for example yes that's right you know that's another yep. one. And then obviously you must teach by direct instruction. So isn't isn't yep. that interesting now that something that was kind of designed to eradicate that has now yes. become almost a parody in a sense that you must include these things in your lesson? Yes, absolutely. And I think part of the problem, you know, and I've we've all been through different phases and I've been implicated in, in some of this, is that the research by some educators but more worryingly by policymakers and politicians. Research has been cherry-picked and weaponized in order to promote a particularly simplistic, regressive, and traditional model of education. It's not being, research is not being used in an intellectually honest way, and I think that needs calling out, um, and that's, that was part of my purpose in writing the book. Yeah, absolutely. And you think of examples that have been called out. So, you know, learning to learn or learning styles and, you know, sure. supposedly debunked uh, education myths. But then equally, you know, you could say that um, something like retrieval practice has now become, and I think it's, um, I think it's a Dylan William, it's become a lethal mutation, hasn't it? You know, yeah, in, exactly in the way that so. it's being applied in the classroom. It, exactly so. And again, I've nothing wrong, you know, I have n no fight with traditional methods used uh, appropriately sometimes. I went to a little village school for a short period of my life when I was seven, eight, or nine, and we sang our times tables. We chanted them in the morning. And I don't think that that did any lasting damage to the fragile little flower of my human spirit. I think it was a it was an, an economical way of learning something that's been useful to me throughout my life. But to take that as the prototype, as the be-all and the end-all for what pedagogy is and should be, is just fundamentally misguided and edge and really regressive in terms of the, the, the complex and urgent questions that are pressing us to think forward about how to help kids get ready to live well in a really complicated world.
Definitely. So do you feel as if that this simple mindedness then is, is holding education back? Yes, absolutely. And that's hence the title of my book. Mm. Um, you know, and, and a lot of what the traditionalists are saying, it's like, you know, there's a grain of truth. Or, you know, if you add a little more nuance, if you're allowed to add a little more nuance and say, yes, for some kids, sometimes, I mean, my discussion of Michaela, for example, I think, Catherine Burblesing doesn't agree with me, but I think is rather generous. I think with certain kinds of kids who may not have acquired certain basic capabilities of self-regulation for whatever reason in their growing up before they went to school, may well benefit from a kind of boot camp in instilling in them knowing how to sit down and be quiet and listen and remember to bring their stuff I don't have a problem with that. But again, you know, with Michaela, my problem is that that's just the launch pad. That's just the, the, you know, the concrete foundations of what, of the education that I would want to build. And to say that, you know, everything begins and ends with, with that kind of, dis, that tightly disciplined uh, approach to teaching um, misses out. You know, why not have both? Why not have self-discipline and self-regulation and politeness and then build on that imagination and empathy and collaboration and mindfulness and whatever else we might wish uh, for children to have? It just seems to me a kind of unnecessary polarization, an unnecessary article of faith that there is, you know, there's still this lingering idea that we have to get rid of this progressive nonsense. Mm. And, you know, I mean, it's just, and we're back to Fort Fountain, aren't we? We're back to just end up, you just end up being worn out with this old fruitless slanging match. Mm. And I mean, I've had discussions with guests previously around, and I know we're talking mainly about knowledge uh, in the book, but obviously around behavior is a very similar kind of discussion in, in the sense, I mean, I go out and do a talk that's, that's entitled, that he says in shameless plug for own talk, you know, behavior, ideology, uh, evidence and pragmatism, because you talk a lot about, you know, the nuanced approach, but behavior is very similar. You know, at one end, it's no excuses, zero tolerance, high standards, you know, you must do this way. And the other end, it's all behavior is communication. And, you know, yeah. it's portrayed as if, well, anything goes. And you know, you're right in saying that where teachers are is somewhere in the middle. And that's why I would recommend this book to all classroom teachers, senior leaders, everyone who's working within schools, because, you know, I'm not just saying this guy because you're here. You're you're definitely talking to people that are currently in the classroom. They can see that coming through in, in what you're talking about here. You've clearly, obviously, as you do with all your work, research this in depth, but you've, you've clearly spoken to teachers about what kind of thing teachers are experiencing. And I think it's it's very much, you know, of the mood of the moment. Good. Yeah. Well, thank you. That was my 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 fundamental hope for the book is that it will strengthen teachers' confidence and their courage to inhabit that middle ground, to see that pedagogy is a complex, lifelong craft that they're continually questioning and developing, and that to teach in a way that um, effectively cultivates useful attributes, useful expertise, useful knowledge for young people is kind of new to, to be paying more explicit, more conscious attention to the slow growing of the big fish down the bottom of the river, the cultivation of those habits of mind, does require us to think and to tinker 
or to use Michael and Darch's word, to think, to thinker. To, we're, we're, we're like in a thinkering profession. We're thinking and tinkering with our practice all the time. And I want to give back to the millions of teachers who are not ideologically committed the courage and the confidence to thinker about their, about their practice uh, in a nuanced way and not to be browbeaten by some of the exaggerated or polarized claims of the neo-traditionalists. Definitely. So with that in mind, then, obviously, the book is called The Future of Teaching, and we've discussed a lot of the myths that hold it back. So what do you say towards the end of the book that you think is the future of teaching? Well, I, I, as, as I say, I, I, a lot of my previous work uh, has been around trying to identify what that is. I think there are a lot of little, if I'm going to be fancy, cultural signifiers that we need to be, teachers need to become growingly aware of in the classroom. Things like what you, the, the, the whole cultural mood of the classroom either invites, creates a, another of my metaphors, either creates an undertow, a cultural undertow in the classroom, which is, which are pulling youngsters in the direction of becoming more independent, more thoughtful, more resilient, more imaginative, more critical in their approach to learning, or the, 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 the danger of the traditionalists, because they're not thinking about what's going on down at the bottom of the river, is that by default, the undertow is drawing kids in the direction of becoming more passive, more compliant, more docile, more extrinsically motivated, more intellectually timid. And if that were the case, then I'm sorry, I have to call that miseducation rather than the real education. If through negligence, we were cultivating that dysfunctional set of attitudes to learning and to knowledge, then it's time we, it's time we woke up. So there's lots going on around the world, all different kinds of at national level, at the level of, of organizations like the OECD, chains of schools like the, um, the expeditionary learning schools in the USA, or the habits of mind schools, there is a kind of um, fervent culture of inquiry, a grassroots inquiry and development of what this kind of 21st century pedagogy looks like. And I've made some contributions to that, my, to that myself. Um, and the future of, of, of teaching that book is designed to kind of, you know, throw a couple of sticks of dynamite into what I think has become a bit of an intellectual logjam so that this current, this tide of necessary innovation, which I think most teachers have in their root, in their guts, you know, they know that there is more to teaching than obsessing about the next Ofsted inspection or, um, or, the, or racking up the GCSE results. You know that that's where that's where the game should be. So, having been an advocate for most of my writing life, I felt it was necessary to be a, a little adversarial, not against all forms of traditionalism, but against what I call this kind of powerful pedagogical extremism, which has claimed not only the moral high ground but the scientific high ground, and they have no claim to that. 
Absolutely. It's such a refreshing book. And it says on the front cover from John Hattie, a timely tour de force. And, you know, as as someone who reads a lot of education books, you know, both for pleasure and as a result of doing this podcast, I'm sent a lot of books and a lot of books <laughs> do become extremely similar. I'm sorry, I'm not meaning that as a, a offensive comment to anybody that I've had on as a previous guest, but I am <laughs> kind of used to reading very similar books along very similar themes. And this absolutely isn't. This is this is so refreshing. Like I said, I've handed out copies at school as well um, and just thought people, especially to our research leads, you'd be pleased to know, Guy. Oh, I've excellent. handed it out to the research leads and have a look at this. Oh, so, yes, good. it's absolutely superb. So just a reminder before we just do one more section that the book is called The Future of Teaching and the Myths That Hold It Back. Nailers, natter, just talking to teachers. So, Guy, would you mind and have you got time? And I know it's a rather frivolous thing to ask at the end of a very highbrow discussion about education. We do like to find out a little bit more of the guests, about the guests in terms of, you know, their background. So... Could we step into our vinyl suite? Now, I can see behind Guy on his shelves there, there's lots of education books and no doubt other books, as you would expect. I can't see any vinyl records there, but maybe he, he has. <laughs> so would you mind, first of all, stepping into the vinyl suite? And if you wouldn't, then would you be able to share a story related to a particular piece of music and tell <laughs> listeners about how it's influenced you and your career? Certainly. Are you, are you going to fish out this piece of music and, and add it to the post podcast? We absolutely are. We have a full. We have a music license. Yep. So it will be inserted <laughs> at the correct point. Yes, it will. <laughs> okay. Very good. Well, I I ummed and ahed about this, but a, a a very formative piece of piece of music for me. I went to what in those days was called a direct grant school. I was I was at, at boarding school between the ages of eight and eighteen. Um, a, a very minor um independent school, I have to say. Um. Uh, and when I was about 12, I think, I can remember being taken by a more knowledgeable friend of mine to Woolworths and the high street of Worcester. And he persuaded me to buy a seven-inch EP. Remember EPs? Oh, yes. A seven-inch EP call of, of uh, 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 only, there were only about four tunes on, on this. Uh, of the Miles Davis quintet called Straight No Chaser. Um, I would, I think I'd already developed a bit of an interest in the trumpet, in learning to play the trumpet. And I went back and I played that record until it was till it was worn through. So if you could play the trumpet solo, the, the beginnings at least of the trumpet solo from Straight No Chaser, it is so simple and creative and lucid, so lacking in uh, unnecessary egotism. It is just lyrical and spontaneous and a, a wonderful piece of music. And it did inspire me to try to learn the trumpet. And I, it's my it's a, a, a confession that after five years of trumpet lessons, I still was woefully bad at the trumpet. I think I was a bad learner, and I think my teacher was a bad teacher. Term after term, he wrote a little report slip that said, and I, my mum kept these for a long time. I, I looked through them a little while ago. Term after term, his report said, Guy's tone remains disappointingly thin. <laughs> and to this day i still have a cornet in a in a in a box uh sitting at the back of my my somewhere behind me in my study which hasn't seen the light of day uh yet yet or not not for a long time 
um, I still have the ambition to be um, Miles Davis, but I fear uh, I'm never going to fulfil it. <laughs> Fantastic. And this is why this section is brilliant. So let's just hear that now. Fantastic. So, Guy, yes, uh, and, we, and in terms of a choice, you know, uh, in the vinyl suite, which we have at work, which I mention every week, I know that uh, people probably assume that uh, the deputy head and the assistant head in charge of behaviour and safeguarding just sit listening to jazz records all day. <laughs> um, we, we don't. However, we do have a copy of A Kind of Blue on, on blue vinyl, which is on uh, regular oh, play in, in fantastic. the office down there. So high new news. Um, you know, my colleague in there will be listening to this and he will be, you know, <laughs> Definitely agreeing with your choice. So thank you very much for that. So okay. let's oh, just, yeah. Uh, yeah, let's just finish off with, if you can just tell listeners where they can get the book from and maybe if you're doing any future speaking engagements, um, do you mind signposting to previous podcasts that I've listened to? And I also listened to you on Saturday morning on Teacher Talk Radio, weren't you? On uh, Saturday, was that correct? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. So if you can signpost to that, I think that's available as a podcast as well. Yeah, um, there's all kinds of links to podcasts on my my website, guyclaxton.net. Um, lots of resources. There's a there's a blogs that I that I've written in the lead up to the book, and also as a kind of generic response to, as, as you might expect, some of the pushback that the book has received from from some of the neo trads. So I've written a a, a a blog which is on my website, which is just trying to clarify some misconceptions which have have got into the the, the Twitter world about what the book is and what the book isn't and what it's for and what it isn't for. Um, available from all good b- bookstores, of course. Um, and, uh, yeah, I really I really do hope that um, teachers read it. I mean, I tried to write it, although I'm an egghead. I tried to write the book in a way that was pretty matter-of-fact um, and down-to-earth and accessible. So, um, I'm happy to hear that that for you at least, Phil, the the book was was uh, was a pleasurable to read rather than a heavy academic tome. So you know, I do hope that teachers who haven't made up their minds uh, about which camp they belong to, who are non-aligned, will derive um, information and amusement and encouragement from from reading the book. Yeah, absolutely will. And it was one of those, I was sat by the, the letterbox waiting for it to arrive. And like I said before, so I got two copies came through. And not only that, but I've read it through twice already. And like I said, I recommended it to people at work. So yes, go out and buy the book. Absolutely. Guy, it's been a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it's, it. It's been my pleasure as well, Phil. Thank you very much indeed for the chance. 
Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. 